Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. As we approach the new year, you may feel like the cat that Jeanette Cliff George tells about in a recent book, Travel Tips from a Reluctant Traveler. She tells us that she has some cousins who live in Asheville, North Carolina. Jesse is a prominent surgeon. He's a fine man, a gracious man, a loving man, but he doesn't like cats. Uh, His wife, Frances, is a delightful person who loves cats. One day, a little neighbor girl, neighborhood girl, uh, came crying to their house. Her cat had climbed a tree, a tall, slender tree, and couldn't get down. Jesse thought that was a good place for a cat, uh, but uh, following Francis' gentle persuasion, he said, let's see what we can do to help. They decided that Francis, who was of small stature, would grab the lower part of the tree and work it down until uh, the topmost branches reached Jesse. Jesse, who was quite tall, would scoop the frightened cat from the top of the tree to safety. They Their plan worked well at first. Frances grabbed the part of the tree within her reach and pulled it toward her. The tree tipped down like a thirsty giraffe bearing a tiny passenger on its head. The branches were almost to Jesse when Frances lost her grip. Whoom! The tree slipped from Frances' hand and sprang away with such great force that the cat was flung into space. Catapulted, claws out. Eyes wide, approaching a certain but unknown destiny. The little girl was crushed, but the shock of her beloved cat's mode of departure stopped her crying. Frances was overcome by guilt because she and Jesse had lost the little girl's cat. Jesse tried not to laugh. They all accepted the foiled rescue attempt. What else could they do? A few days later, Francis was in the grocery store and noticed a friend pushing a grocery cart with cat food in it. She knew that her friend's husband didn't like cats any more than Jesse did. I see you have cat food. Do you have a cat? She asked. Her friend stopped, looked around to be sure no one else could hear, and said, Francis, the strangest thing happened. My husband and I were sitting on the patio In our backyard, when all of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky, this cat dropped in our feet. (laughs) My husband looked at the cat, and then at me, and he said, Maud, the Lord has sent us a cat. Well, as we enter this new year, you may feel a little bit like that cat flying through space, eyes wide, claws extended. A sure and uncertain destiny awaiting you. Well, uh, we are being catapulted into the next decade here. And uh, I thought maybe a little uh, IV from Isaiah, intravenous feeding from Isaiah might do us good as we go into this year. Notice Isaiah's uh, uh, introductory verse. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Uh, We don't know anything else about Isaiah. Uh, We just know he was the son of Amos, and we don't know who this Amos was. Uh, And yet he has uh, one of the great books of Scripture. 
Notice he describes how he came to write. The vision of Isaiah, which he saw. The, the Hebrew word vision is hazon. And uh, the idea is that God communicated with Isaiah. He would do it in various ways. But it was God's word. This is not Isaiah's thoughts about the current events or things to come, not his insight into things. This is God's revelation to Isaiah that he wants Isaiah to communicate to the world and particularly to Judah and Jerusalem. The New Testament, Second Peter, says, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. It's not just the prophet's ideas of things. Rather, holy men of old spake as they were born along or moved by the Holy Spirit. God's revelation. Notice uh, it was about Judah and Jerusalem. And he delivered this in the days of four kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom. This is after the division of the kingdom under King Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And uh, those four kings reigned for 81 years. But uh, Isaiah's call to be a prophet apparently came in the year that King Uzziah died, which was 739 B.C. Uh, the whole period of those reigns were from seven. 67 to 686 B.C., but apparently he was called right at the end of Uzziah's reign. He strikes a theme here in this first chapter that is uh, recurs throughout the book. Notice how the chapter opens up. A charge that God levels against the kingdom of Judah... And he calls the whole universe to listen. In a sense, the whole universe is, is the jury here as God presents his case against Judah, against the nation. He charges them with ingratitude first. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But my people doth not know, Israel doth not consider. He charges them with ingratitude. Even the dumb beast knows who feeds him and gives allegiance to his master. But although I have succored this nation, been a father to it, provided for it, they don't give allegiance to me. The charge of ingratitude. And then the charge of iniquity. Yeah, but thinking of that for a moment, think of how our nation, uh, God has been a father to our nation. The pilgrims coming over to have freedom to worship God and uh, the providence of God in uh, providing for them and watching over them. The first, the first uh, winter over half of them died. And then a uh, Indian, Quantos, uh, who had uh, been 
uh, taught uh, <coughs> about English, and uh, he he comes. Uh, he 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 knew English. He comes to these and he teaches them how to grow corn. The only thing that saved their lives, God providing. When the pilgrims were coming over on a ship, as an afterthought, one picked up a huge screw and placed it on the ship. In the storms, the ship cracked and would have broken apart, but they were able to take that screw and screw it in and hold the ship together. Think of uh, the history of our nation and how God has provided. What nation has been blessed like our nation for over 200 years? I have nourished and brought up children, but they have rebelled against me. What about you as an individual? Hasn't God provided for you and looked after you in so many ways, blessed? But do we give him the allegiance that he deserves? Well, he charges them with ingratitude, and then he charges them with iniquity. In uh, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, and the fountainhead of that evil. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. They are backslidden. The charge of iniquity. What about our nation? Think of the 1.6 million abortions each year. Think of the corporations, the large corporations that fund with hundreds of thousands of dollars Planned Parenthood, the number one promoter of abortions in our nation. For instance, uh, you'd find uh, uh, American Express, AT&T, Bristol Myers, General Mills, H.J. Heinz, Pillsbury, Xerox, all giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to Planned Parenthood each year. The pornography, the crime, the drugs, the homosexuality. Article in the Wall Street Journal, Gay Rights Advancing Under the Banner of AIDS. In a television uh, scene produced for the city of New York, a handsome man talks directly to the camera. It was a perfect evening. Candlelight, music, stars, and then he asked me whether I enjoyed safer sex. I've never felt so good about saying yes. These commercials, although ostensibly meant only to tell people how to protect themselves if they do engage in homosexual activity, in fact, carry a powerful, legitimating message, says the writer of the article. The tragedies that come out of the drug scene. Here's an editorial. Babies of crack users crowd hospitals break everybody's hearts. Here's another editorial. How a Florida mother needing cash for crack handed over her four-month-old baby, sold her baby just to get 
some cash for crack. Well, uh, the iniquity of our nation. Recent Gallup poll of college students and 100 public and private institutions across the country found that 69% said they do not believe that uh, premarital sex is sinful, uh, that uh, 56% said they approve of living together on, in trial marriages, 51% of the students said they approved of abortions. 50% said they engage in sex occasionally, etc. Carl Henry, a former professor at uh, Fuller Seminary and uh, then the editor of Christianity Today and professor at Trinity Seminary, has a sermon entitled, The Fight of the Day. He bases it on Romans 13 where Paul uses that phrase in Philip's translation. Philip's translates the passage like this. The present time is of the highest importance. It is time to wake up to reality. The night is nearly over. The day has almost dawned. Every day brings God's salvation nearer than the day in which we took the first step of faith. Let us therefore fling away the things that men do in the dark. Let us arm ourselves for the fight of the day. Let us be Christ's men from head to foot and give no chance to the flesh to have its fling. He speaks of the fight of the day. And he says, I have a heavy heart about America. American culture seems to me to be sinking toward sunset. To be sure, there's a godly remnant, not simply a tiny band, but a goodly number for which we may be grateful. But it is surely not America at her best when we chart the massacre of a million fetuses a year, the flight from the monogamous family, the two and a half million persons trapped in illegal drugs and alcohol. Our country now has a larger drug problem than any other industrialized nation in the world. The normalizing of deviant sexual behavior in the Washington, Baltimore area alone, a quarter of a million uh, homosexuals. What is underway, he says, is a redefinition, a redefinition of the good life. In that fantasy world of sinful desires, shameful lust, and a depraved mind, adultery and homosexuality are good, coveting and stealing are good, violence and terrorism are good. Western society is experiencing a great cultural upheaval. More and more, the wicked subculture comes to open cultural manifestation. The fight of the day. Surely God would charge our nation with iniquity just as he did the nation of Judah. What does God do about that? Notice the chastisement of God upon the nation for this. In verse 5, he asks a question. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. God had been striking the nation for its sin, chastising whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Uh, if we endure chastening, it's to turn us from our sin. And... Uh, God had been chastening them. 
but they weren't responding. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. He chastens them to bring them to him, but they just turn away. Now, that's true. that was true of the nation. It's true of individuals whom the Lord loves. He chastens. That doesn't mean that everything bad that happens is God's chastening. That was the era of Job's comforters. They came to him and they said, Job, you've had all these awful problems. God is punishing you. What have you done wrong? And they were wrong. That was not why Job was having those problems. Not all calamities are God's chastening, but some are. And uh, when we're going on in sin and calamities come our way, we better count that those are God's chastening, God's judgments, turning us back to himself so he won't have to ultimately judge. Well, think about God's chastening of our nation. Think about the AIDS epidemic. Is the AIDS epidemic a judgment from God? Well, let's ask the question, does God judge? Yes, God judges. Does God ever send plagues in judgment? Yes, God sends plagues in judgment. You read of it in Scripture over and over. Amos 4.10, I sent plagues among you as I did in Egypt, yet you have not returned unto me. Notice the purpose of the plague was to turn them to him. Are the sins of homosexuality and promiscuity condemned in Scripture? Certainly they are. Romans chapter 1. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Because of their idolatry, He gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. You say, but some uh, innocent people get AIDS. That's right. The babies suffer, don't they? Some hemophiliacs, etc. Well, when God sent a plague to Israel, did any innocent people who were not pursuing sin but were walking with God, innocent in that sense, none of us are innocent in the ultimate sense, but did any of them uh, get those plagues? Certainly. When God sent a flood, did any babies drown? Certainly. Innocent people get hurt along with the guilty. But in general, the plague of AIDS is connected with a particular sin. Think of that calamity. Think of the earthquake that struck California. Think of the hurricane that struck the East Coast. Think of the tornado that struck uh, in Huntsville. All of these are chastening. That doesn't mean that the people on the East Coast or the people in California where the earthquake hit or the sinners more than the rest of the nation. That's why it didn't hit Birmingham. It hit California. I'm tempted to think that, but that's not what it means. You remember, Jesus said... Uh, when it was reported to him about a calamity, he said, Do you think those 18 men on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, that they were sinners above all other men? you think that's what that calamity is saying? No. I say unto you, nay. 
But it is saying something. That's not what it's saying, but it is saying something. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He said when those things happen, they have a voice, the voice of God. And they didn't have it by accident. And they're calling all of us to repentance. The question is, suppose the tower had fallen on you. Are you walking with God? Are you repentant? And all of these things are calling our nation and us to repentance. God's chastisement. The loss of our economic leadership in the world. Another chastisement. Now, we see the question God raises. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. And he describes what had happened as a result of his chastening, the situation. He pictures it medically. He pictures the nation as if it were a person who's, who's been cut and wounded by these chastisements. And verse 5, uh, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. You're like a person who's just about been beaten to death as a nation. Medically, one of our members uh, has a quiet time, and he will jot down some notes for himself, and then he sends me a copy every week. Recently, he sent this. Chinese gangs in various American cities impose a punishment referred to as death by a thousand cuts. The recalcitrant gang member is tied and then cut by a knife 1,000 times. While each cut is painful, no one cut is life-threatening, nor perhaps are ten. But the inevitable result of a 1,000 cuts is to bleed slowly and painfully to death. In America, we have imposed upon ourselves death by a 1,000 cuts. The blade of the knife is immorality. The cuts are too numerous to list, but include... Lack of respect for parents and other authority, pornography, humanism, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, drug use, disregard for long-term commitment of marriage, disinterest in God and failure to fear Him, incredibly loose moral standards adhered to on TV, radio, and movie producers, love of money, profanity in real life and on the flicks, prostitution, infidelity, soap operas, and the messages they convey, etc. He's got... Many things listed. Death by a thousand cuts. Seems like that's maybe what's happening to us as a nation. He describes their situation medically and then militarily and economically. In uh, verse 8, the daughter of uh, verse 7, Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land strangers devour. Enemy uh, army had invaded Assyria. God says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger. God is using Assyria to chastise his people. Uh, <clears throat> the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a large lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. The nation was devastated. Well, we see the charge of iniquity and the chastisement. 
of God, seeking to turn them from their iniquity. The condemnation of their religious exercises comes next. They might say, but God, we are very religious. We keep uh, uh, your worship in the way that you've appointed. We have the temple sacrifices, the high priests, the offerings. Uh, but God condemns their religious exercises. We might say, well, God, we are a very religious nation. Think of all the churches. Think of the percentage of our population that goes to church versus many other nations, such as England. And uh, notice in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the Lord of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of, sick of, the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of he-goats, although he had appointed these offerings. He wasn't pleased with them because of their hypocrisy. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I'm weary to bear them. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. When you come to church and uh, you offer your money or you, you sing hymns, you pray, if meanwhile you're engaging in things that I've forbidden, says God, it's not acceptable. It's an offense to me. I hate it. It's hypocritical. You draw near with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In the church, what do we do in America? I was reading of one of the bishops in the Episcopal Church, Bishop of Newark, John Spong. In his book, Living in Sin, a Bishop Rethinks Human Sexuality. He says, the time has surely come for the Church of America not just to tolerate, but to celebrate. Welcome the presence among us of our gay and lesbian fellow human beings. And he proposes an Episcopal ceremony, proposes an Episcopal ceremony for the union of two homosexuals. It would read like this. In the name of God, I, George, take you stand to be my companion, etc. The church. What? What about you and I? We're not innocent either, are we? Uh, maybe we haven't engaged in gross sins, uh, but we've engaged in sin. Uh, we've been unforgiving. Uh, we've had bitterness. Uh, we've told lies. Uh, we've not done as God tells us to do. What are the conditions of acceptance by God. What do we have to do? What did they need to do? And what does our nation need to do? Notice the condition of acceptance. Verse 16. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. 
relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widows. The turning from sin, the turning to God, repentance, that's the essence of repentance. Cease to do evil. And he specifies certain things they were doing wrong they needed to deal with. Uh, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. The renunciation of accustomed sin. Melody Green, the widow of Keith Green, the singer, says in an article discussing modesty, it amazes me to see young girls and, either, and even mature women in church or at outdoor festivals and gatherings, hands uplifted, offering praise to God, with their necklines plunging and their skirts slid halfway up their thighs. These women are lost in their own selfish little world, oblivious to their effect on others, not caring at all if they're causing someone to stumble. Many seem innocent to any wrongdoing and appear to have a real excitement and love for the Lord. But all the while, their body is sending out a totally different message. I know, because I've done it, partly in ignorance, but mostly in rebellion. Well, whatever our particular sin is, and it can go from the gross to this type thing, we need to deal with it, as she faced up to it and dealt with it on her part. The renunciation of accustomed sin, uh, the performance of neglected duty, learn to do well. And uh, it has to be genuine. It deals with self. Helen Rosaviri, a missionary, tells about after being on the mission field for four years that there came a point when... Uh, she found herself filled with frustration and anger, lashing out at people. And finally, she went to the native pastor there in Africa. And she said, what's the problem? And he took his foot and he drew a, an eye in the sand, in the dirt. He said, the problem, Helen, is... Your ego. You're so full of yourself that although you do all these good deeds, you're over here as a doctor taking care of people, but you're so full of self that we can't see the Lord for you. She said, What do I need to do? He took his foot and he X'd out the eye. He said, You need to learn to die to self. And she said, now for 20 years, I've been trying to apply that lesson. Well, that was a hard truth that pastor spoke to her. But it was blessed by God. And we need to deal with things in our lives that are not right. There's uh, that repentance and the cleansing. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doing. And then notice what God says. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
Don't care what you've done. You can be forgiven and you can be changed. You may have aborted your baby. I'm sure a number of women sitting here have done that. But are we repentant? Do we acknowledge the wrong of it? And I'm sure you do. And that can be totally forgiven. Are you uh, in the throes of some habit that's wrong? It can change. Are you considering divorce? That's against God's will, probably, in, in your case. Depends on the circumstances, but in most cases, certainly against His will. Deal with that. You know, repentance in the nation begins in the individual's. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow, no matter what we've done. And whatever you've done, I've done worse. We have here the, the doctrine of justification. Though they've been scarlet, they should be whiter than snow, totally forgiven. Now, we don't have that doctrine worked out in depth. We don't know how God forgives here in this passage. Later on, Isaiah will tell us in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him this coming Messiah, the iniquity of us all. That's how God forgives, through his Son, whom he would send to take our sin. Faith in him as the Son of God. Trust in him as the one who died for our sins. Repentance and faith. That's how God forgives and cleanses. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Maybe God's been chastening you to get you to turn. Turn and go to Him for forgiveness. The choice in verse 19, you have a choice. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, he shall be devoured with a sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Every man faces a choice. What can we do for our nation? Chuck Colson, in his new book, Against the Night, says, Moral virtue is the most essential element of a just society. But once squandered, can it be recovered? Who or what is equipped to regenerate a moral impulse in the long, atrophied conscience of a corrupted nation? Can the, the educational system do it, he asked? No. Uh, what about the government? No. Uh, what about uh, the media? No. Only two real sources of moral impulse. One, the family. The family can make a change. Number two, the evangelical church. The church that holds up the authority of the Word of God, the power of the Son of God, to save all who come unto God by Him. Those two sources, the family and the evangelical church, can be a source of God beginning to renew that moral impulse. He goes on to quote Russell Kirk, who says, There must appear among us men and women endowed with the sort of imaginative power that transforms the spirit of the age. Men like Isaiah, women like Melody Green or Helen Rosevere, 
People who know God and know what they believe and stand up for this. People like Chuck Colson. Uh, these uh, folks must lead the way, in a sense. Well, we've got the fight of the day on our hands. And let's do what Paul said in Romans. Let us therefore fling away the things that men do in the dark. Let us arm ourselves for the fight of the day. Let us be Christ's men from head to foot. Because if you haven't made the choice of Christ initially, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Come now, let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, how would God have you to take the lead toward seeking to be an influence to renew the moral quality in the nation? What part can you play? You can make a difference. How can you do that? Is there some area of your life that you need to deal with? Maybe not a gross sin, but nonetheless something that's not pleasing to God. What about arming yourself for the fight, daily time with Him, putting on the whole armor of God? If you've never responded to that invitation, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. But you're prepared to acknowledge His Lordship in your life, to turn from sin, and to trust Him to cleanse you. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, thank You for that wonderful offer. And my sins are like scarlet. I come to You to have them made white as snow. I turn from sin. I turn to You. Come into my life. Amen.